Okay, I think we'll start the second session. We're running a bit over time, hoping people can stick around for our conversation with Karen Pickering and Clementine Ford, and then Murphy Peoples will join us after for a Q&A with everyone. Um, so I guess this is the second half of our district event, and we're thinking about less formalised modes of community. I mean, maybe less obviously spatial modes of community forming. Um, Karen Pickering started an online parenting community that I'm part of quite by accident. My um, student midwife added me after a week um, of parenting and I was losing the plot. And she said, you know, do you have anyone to speak about this kind of stuff with? And none of my friends are having babies at the moment. And I said, no, I don't have anyone to talk to. And she's like, I'm just going to add you to this group. You might not like it. And I thought, oh, yeah, a Facebook parenting group. This is going to be a disaster. And I got home and thought, I'll just check it out because Julia said it's good and I trusted Julia. Um, she helped me birth my baby. You know, I'll, like, I'll just follow this up. And then found myself breastfeeding Mabel and just scrolling frantically like, oh, my God, people are actually talking about this. People are talking about um, the, like, abrupt shift in gender politics once you have a baby. Like, I was so angry at my partner that he couldn't breastfeed and people were talking about this feeling and acknowledging it and I felt so overwhelmed and grateful that there was this community all of a sudden and it's really become a huge part of my, my life. Um, and that's how I know Pickering and uh, Karen Pickering and how I've met Clementine Ford is also. Um, so I thought I could... We'd, speak with Karen about the architecture of community and, and how that's constructed in other kinds of spaces, um, mostly online. And Clementine, I read um, your article about if it takes a village to raise a child, then we need more men in that village. And that, I thought that was a really important article because um, I don't have a car, I'm on public transport a lot, I'm trying to parent in public a lot. And often casting around for help in moments, um, often, yeah, feeling quite overwhelmed and needing people's help and thinking about who do I ask um, and not just in those moments of help me lift my pram up into the tram but also, you know, um, asking my brother to look after my baby rather than always asking my mother, you know, and thinking about how can we incorporate men more into these caring um, communities. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to hear what you guys have to say about how we can make um, be better parenting communities um, and what the architecture of that might be. So, I'll just quickly introduce Karen. Um, she's a feminist organiser and writer, and she was the creator and host of Cherche La Femme, which was a live talk show of popular culture and current affairs for an unapologetically, from an unapologetically feminist angle, which ran monthly in Melbourne and toured nationally from 2010 to 2016. She was also the co-founder of Girls on Film Festival, serving as its first director, and also was a founding organiser of Slut Walk Melbourne, and is the editor of Doing It, a collection of sex-positive writing by women, which was released in 2016. And she's currently writing a book on menstruation and menopause in collaboration with the Victorian Women's Trust. And primarily, primarily for me, she's the founder of this very special Facebook group. <laughs> Clementine's an, a writer, um, broadcaster, public speaker. And in 2016, Alan Anumwan published her first book, Fight Like a Girl. And she's currently, I think, working on a book about toxic masculinity, um, I tentatively called Boys Will Be Boys. Absolutely called. Boys oh, okay. Boys. Cool, cool, cool. Working title I saw in the photo, so I didn't want to um, assume... Uh, Clementine's also a moderator of this Facebook group. And, yeah, I'm just really happy that you guys are here. So thank you very much for being here. Thanks for inviting us. I really want to hold your baby. <laughs> do you want to... Shall I ask you some questions or do you want to speak, Karen, a bit about the architecture of this special community? Uh, sure. Well, I can, I can quickly explain it in um, general terms because it is secret. The, one of the uh, defining features of this online... And it's really a mothering group rather than a parenting group. Like, I, I, get, I am a parent, but I'm a mother as well and they're different. And I think um, a lot of times mum spaces 
are derided and sneered at as really stupid and pathetic. Um, you even yourself had that slight fear that you were going to be in a, in a you know, Facebook mums group. Um, you know, mummy, mummy blogs and what are the other things? Mother's groups. What are the other things to do with mums, you know? Um, if, it's, if mums are doing it, then it's not cool. Although I heard this thing recently called... There's a, there's a Facebook... There's a phenomenon called Facebook wine mums. So I was like, it's meant to be contemptuous and an insult. And I was like, that's totally me. I'm totally a Facebook wine mum. Wine like drinking wine? Or yeah, like wine. Fa- oh, not well, wine like whining. No, Facebook wine mum. Like okay. hashtag Facebook wine mum. It's okay. like what millennials call like lame... Like embarrassing older women who always post on Facebook about like I'm having a wine, and I was like, oh my god, I love those women, they're my people. So, um, but yeah, but basically, I I did as well. The paradox is that I did as well find a lot of mums groups and parenting spaces after I had a baby really challenging, because they seemed kind of either apolitical or really by default very conservative in their gender politics and. A lot of their other politics as well. And so I just thought, oh, there should be a mums group where, you know, everyone is a feminist and everyone cares about refugees and everyone kind of agrees that their male partners should do more work. And, um, but that also where, yeah, you could be a Facebook wine mum and nobody would think you're an idiot, you know. Um, and so as with most communities that I've started and, and run whether it's the Girls on Film Festival or Slut Walk or whatever, it was just something that I wished already existed and it didn't exist, so then I just made it. Um, So we made this secret um, mumming group and the only reason it's secret is because we want everyone who's in it to feel like they can say whatever they want without it ever, you know, being repeated or referred to in public. And so that's one of the things... So it's feminist, it's secret... It's non-judgmental. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't judge people who are in it, like, because you're a human being, like, you judge other people, but you just keep it to yourself in this group because there's plenty of spaces that you can go and, like, say, oh, my God, you know, that woman's car is too big or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so that was how it started. And um, the other thing about the, the, the architecture of it, I guess, is that you... You, you get referred into it by someone who's already in the group. So you're kind of vouched for, I suppose, and people kind of um, invite... We've, we've asked them to think about inviting people who are going to be really engaged, who are going to be active in the group, who are going to share the same politics. And, um, yeah, so it's gone from being a really, really super private space of, like, 40, 50 people to now, you know, nearly 500 people, um, all women, and it's a sort of unapologetically women-centric space, which, you know, you would think wasn't so radical if we're talking about parenting, but um, politically, it's... it's uh, If you put politics into motherhood, it um, becomes a little bit more... Radical and unusual, I guess. I wanted to ask about, um, you know, the thing about a district or community, there is some form of boundary or some kind of demarcation, which we've tried to do today with these lines, just symbolically. I guess I was wondering, um, what are the boundaries of the space? And in this case, I think they take the form of the rules that are set out. And, like, that's quite a formal thing for, you know, what is kind of informal, like a Facebook group. Um, But these rules that you ask everyone to read and adhere to are quite an important part. Yeah, they're a contract, yeah. really. And, you know, we all exist within kind of understood social contracts, I suppose. And like you say, that I think women operate in public spaces and in, in their communities according to certain contracts, like look after other women or, you know, hopefully... Um, but like you say, that social contract doesn't usually extend to men. Like men don't see a mum struggling with something and say, do you want me to just hold the baby while you mix that formula up, you know? And, and as Clem's saying, they, sh- they absolutely should. Um, but in the case of this group, this because I, w- I suppose one boundary is that it's online. So we, 
we um, crisscross backwards and forwards across that by having, you know, IRL meetups and, and so on. Um, but it is online and that kind of makes the space have a particular character. It's got rules which are, like, like, like you said, when people join the group or are pledged to the group kind of thing, um, we ask them to read the rules and say, I, I read these and I'm cool with that. That sounds like my kind of thing. And the rules, as you say, they sound really strict. And the idea is that I wanted to make the rules really clear and unequivocal so that then once everyone knew what the boundaries were, then within those boundaries they could be very loose and they could really relax and just say, like, you know, if you, if you have one of the rules that says no judge, you know, this is non-judgmental, like no judgment allowed here, that's a massive game changer in terms of how people will interact. Um, so, like I said, we're human beings. It doesn't mean you don't judge people and it doesn't mean that you don't sometimes think, oh, God, I wouldn't, do th I wouldn't make that decision myself or I, or I wouldn't do that with my kid or whatever. But the good thing about it is because we've specifically asked everyone to, like, not be judgmental in the space, it means that people can talk about stuff that's private and unusual or challenging um, people and and I guess high octane emotional subjects like <laughs> which you don't know until you have a baby are, are going to be those subjects but like sleep um, food carriers and prams things that cesarean sections stuff that once you become a mum, you figure out they're like, whoa, massively charged emotional issues that people feel really scared to talk about because they fear that someone's going to come in and say, you're a bad mum. And so that frees people up to do that in the space, I think, if they know that no one's going to say, you're a bad mum, you know. Um, you turned your car seat around too early. You must hate your child, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I won't go through all of the rules, but it basically, yeah, it's, it's that, you know, women come first, it's explicitly feminist, it's political, it's intersectional in, in its politics. It means that, that we have to negotiate gender politics as well as race, as well as sexuality, as well as ability and, and able-bodiedness and so on. So it means that it's, I guess progressive or left-wing feminist as well, but mostly what guides it is that it's, it's women-centred and so it's women for other women. Um, and that's not the easiest space to find. Why is it on Facebook? Like, why Facebook rather than any other platform? And, and what makes it different? Oh, okay, because everyone knows that Facebook sucks. And... Facebook is the worst um, in terms of its politics and its, and its treatment of women and its, you know, gender politics and so on. Um, it's literally just the functionality of a, how that they've, they've really made a very, very good infrastructure for building groups and for running events and for um, moderating the group. We've got all these little tools. I don't know if you, if you moderate a group yourself... But there are all these really whiz-bang kind of tools that help you moderate. Like, um, there are, it's in beta at the moment, but there are, there are little quizzes that you can set up that automatically get sent to any new member. So then a, any new member just gets this little um, tick box kind of thing that says, like, you know, um, you just answer the questions and then that gets sent back to the moderator. Things like that, like really automated features that probably you know that certainly ha have revolutionized organizing but um that are really irresistible because if we set up a blog or a website it'd be really really hard to have the same community that we do and it'd be really hard for people well not really hard but it's easy on facebook for people to then connect with one another connect with one another um separately from the group 
like, and then they can have their own friendship and their friendship. See, these words, they're actually meaningful words that have been co-opted by a corporation that stinks. Um, connect, friendship, you know, but they're real. And so um, Facebook just does a really good job of, of they've cornered that, that market of connecting friendships um, because other platforms, you know, Twitter is, besides being unsuited to groups, a cesspit. And, um, and websites are not as, I guess, dynamic. <laughs> I'm just like... I'm like Joey and friends, like friends, dynamic. Um, yeah, so Facebook is just what works for us, yeah. If we didn't have Facebook, we wouldn't have this group. Yeah, for sure. And I think when we met um, a couple of weeks ago to speak about this session, like I was saying, one of the other amazing things about Facebook is that you don't actually have to meet up with anyone. Like it's just there and it's on your phone, which you always have. And during those 3 a.m. feeds, you can connect with someone else who might also be up and feeding and that's pretty unique because getting anywhere with a small child is so tricky often. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why it works so well. It's particularly suited to new mothers and mothers of newborns and babies because, yeah, it's in your phone and you can be accessing it. You can be kind of dipping in and out of it um, and you don't have to follow, like, if you jump into Twitter, sometimes you just feel a bit like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what's happening? Because everyone's in the middle of something really intense and inscrutable. But Facebook, you can kind of, like you did, you, you jumped on the group and then you were like, I've got all these hours while I'm breastfeeding this baby. I'm just going to go back through the posts over like a year mm. and just sort of browse through them. And it ends up being like a stack of Vanity Fairs that you find at the hairdresser or whatever. You can kind of get the rhythms of it, mm. figure out what the columns are like, what are, the, what are these people, <laughs> you know, she seems cool, she seems like a dickhead, whatever. Yeah. Um, because, you know, that's... Of course, someone who I think is cool, someone else might think is a dickhead. But that's the really good thing about having the online space is that if someone is a dickhead, you just keep scrolling. Mm. You don't kind of... You're not actually physically stuck with them Mm. in Mm. that corner at the party or whatever. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Um, How do you think the design of our physical spaces can learn from this online experience? What are the physical outcomes, if, if any? I think I mentioned to you that I had to fill out... I didn't have to. I filled out this survey that was set up by architects, I think, in Brisbane, was it? I'm not sure where they were based. Um, And they were asking parents or mothers to comment on how much they engaged with art and art gallery, like visual art and art galleries after they had a baby. Mm. And, of course, it was tempting to just be like, I don't do this anymore. That's that's the, my pre-baby life. Mm. But then I really thought about it and I thought, yeah, there are certain things that make it possible for me to go and see a band or see an exhibition or see a play or whatever um, that are compatible with being a, a, a mother of a baby. So, you know, what time they're on and things like that. Mm. So I started to think about it and I think I said to you that it, it felt like, to me, it boiled down to a few basic principles, which were access, so physical access, like being able to get a pram somewhere, um, and, yeah, having it at, in the afternoon or whatever. Um, there's a million more access questions. Um, amenity, so they all start with A, hopefully. <laughs> amenity, so having somewhere that I could change the baby, somewhere that I could sit and breastfeed. Um, the number of times I've been in coffee shops where you're like, oh, do you guys have high chairs? And like, no. Or they have high chairs but they don't have a change table. Mm. Or and, and they, I guess, treat you like, often treat you like you're a really gross idiot for asking them. And... But they still... But you want to sit there and spend $50 on breakfast or whatever. Um, But you can't because 
you're going to have to change. I've changed Harry on the floor of toilets, mm. you mm. know, um, which is disgusting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, there, there, amenity is a question, you know, that um, comes to mind. And then the third one I said was attitude, was again like if people behave as though the spaces are just for adults or if people treat you like you're not welcome because you're a parent, whether you've got your baby with you or not, um, then that makes that's another obstacle to participation yeah. in anything that's going on in your community or your district, you know. So I think they're the things that I suppose the online group and in the, in the Facebook platform avoid. You know, everyone has... Most people have access to it. Most people have access to the internet and Facebook. Mm. Um, there's, you know, a search function in the group that makes it easier for people to access advice or certain threads or whatever. And there's a really open and accepting and warm attitude. Yeah. That, um, But also I think an attitude that's quite fierce in its feminism mm. and doesn't want a, want a watered-down version of... It doesn't want, like, mommy feminism. Yeah. It wants, like, you know, to recognise that for some of us, motherhood has hardened us in some way. Like, mm. it, you kind of think when you become a mother, you'll become really sh- schmaltzy and schmoopy. <laughs> but in some ways, I think it's made me much harder, mm. like, much more hardcore in my anger and my frustration mm. and my 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 rage at mm. inequality, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think if you can have a space that is a, where people are allowed to be really fucking angry but also really flippant and really grossly, like, use terrible gallows humour about very serious things and just, you know, reply by gif to conversations about, you know, the gender pay gap or whatever, mm. then you can feel free to be however you feel that day. And I don't know about you, but ever since, you know, becoming a mother has been like an emotional... Roller coaster is like way too tame, Mm. you know, like an emotional apocalypse. Mm, mm. Um, So, yeah, to have a space where you can just go in and be like, this is hilarious or this is revolting or this is, you know... This is how I feel today is life-saving. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I read somewhere that um, motherhood is like is the most punk rock thing you can do because it's about total obliteration of the self in some ways and that it's like, yeah, people treat it as if it's this like, yeah, softening but actually it's, um, it can be something way harder than that. You also end up with a lot of bodily fluids on you. Yes, yeah. yeah. It's pretty metal, you yeah. know, there's a lot of blood and, it, I mean, it, like it splits you open literally and figuratively. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, Clementine, I want to come to you now um, and thinking about parenting in public and how we can create community in, the, in those little moments. Um, could you, for people that haven't read the article, just summarise that, ar- that argument? Um, yeah, so I have a I have one child. He's sixteen months old, and um, obviously, my needs as a parent for what I need the, my public space and community to offer me has grown with him, um, and my needs have changed. But one thing that has, um, I guess, like Karen said, hardened in me is this sense of rage about the inequality that we experience, and I think it would be rare in almost any situation in which a woman is in a partnership with a man, it would be rare for her to have a what she could call a 100% equal relationship when it came to parenting. And that's not to say that... Um, I don't off- normally offer this kind of disclaimer, but that's not to say that those men aren't decent, good people. It's just that the learning curve that you go on when you have a child is so steep and so immediate that the chasm between you and your partner becomes very wide very quickly and any inequality that may have existed prior to you having a child that you may not have recognised because in a way you were able to lead your own individual lives and take care of yourselves, if that was the kind of equal relationship which you had, which is certainly the, um, 
certainly the one that I had before I had a baby because I could take care of myself and I had the freedom to come and go as I saw fit, immediately changed. And so any, any of that inequality will become glaringly obvious and much more heightened. Now, the problem as I see it is that the way that we structure parenting in Western society and in Australian white society is that we allow for that chasm to be created in the first place and to continue being widened because we don't place expectations on... And I'm talking specifically about heterosexual pairings here or people who may not be heterosexual but who are in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. We don't place expectations on fathers beyond this kind of, like, generalised idea of the man who goes out to work and financially supports his partner and the child, which actually, in, in some cases, that's not even happening... Um, so, and, and we do that alongside this narrative of an aspiration to equal parenting that is far more about the aspiration and far less about the actuality of it. Um, it's very difficult to have these kinds of conversations because there are a lot of people who feel very tender about them and also feel, um, feel very targeted by them. So, my... The way that I've reconceived parenting and the way that I've re- reconceived how equality, you know, gender equality occurs in parenting is that that initial creation of the chasm needs to be addressed. And firstly, one of the ways that we can do that, not everyone is going to have the privilege to be able to do this, but one of the ways that we can do this is by insisting that men take a good proportion of time off of work. And I'm not talking about a week's paternity leave. I'm not talking about two weeks. I'm saying a minimum of three months, preferably six months, Um, if you have the privilege for the other parent, the mother, to be able to go back to work with support, I think financial support from the government, that will create stronger relationships between fathers and their children. It will create stronger relationships between men and women who have those children together. And it will also create a stronger community of people generally who are raising the next generation of people, one that has a sense of the responsibility of parenting, not just of your own child, but the responsibility of parenting children and and taking care of children in general. And the reason that I say it's so important for us to actually demand that that big chunk of time be taken off is because if someone had come to me when I had when I was one week into parenting a newborn and said, okay, cool, um, your partner's going to take care of that baby now and you can go back to work and you just have to really kind of be responsible for things for a couple of hours maybe in the evening, but also you can go to sleep at night and know that you don't have to wake up overnight to take care of that child, I would have been like, brilliant, I'm going back to work tomorrow, done with this. Because it's terrifying to have a newborn and it's also constant and boring a lot of the time and um, it's, it's a dr- drastic change from what you were used to and it's certainly a departure from anything you imagined while you were pregnant. When people say, oh, get your sleep now because you won't get it when they're born, firstly, of course, you can't store sleep in the bank. But also, I don't think that anyone actually realises what that sleep de- deprivation is going to be like until they're in it. There's no way to actually conceptualise of what it feels like to not only be woken up every 45 minutes in some cases, as it was with me for a long time, and to also have a child that that needs to constantly be on you because they're a baby and they want security and safety. Um, So the the learning curve, as I said, that that the primary parent who is most often going to be the mother, the learning curve that they go on in those first few months is huge. And it doesn't take them a week to figure out how to parent their baby. It takes them usually around four months before they get to the point where they're like... I think I kind of know what I'm doing here. And they feel confident to be able to make decisions for that baby and feel confident to kind of, like, let their guard down a little bit and relax. Um, Now, that's in most cases. That's not taking into account the fact that some parents have... Some mothers have postnatal depression, postnatal anxiety, and that can obviously severely impact their experience. It makes sense to me, even though I create no excuses for it, it makes sense to me that a father who is not put into that immediacy of the situation where the responsibility for that child's well-being is not just partly his, but almost 100% his for the duration of time that he has to be home with a child. It makes sense to me that he would, subconsciously or not, assume the second-in-command seat. And so then you create these patterns of gender inequality in your house where he may be perfectly capable of taking care of the child for a few hours or overnight even, but as soon as the mum's back in the house, he kind of just automatically takes a step back and then she's responsible for doing everything. You have to work so hard at 
bringing up those issues and being persistent in them because so often what women do as well is because because it's hard to take care of a baby and be constantly fighting with your partner about all of these things. You just sort of go, oh, I, I can only do one of these things right now and that's take care of the baby. And then these patterns are established and that learned helplessness and that willful helplessness is put in place. Now, that's just in, in the home. The article that I wrote was about how we demand more of the village that we live in, which is to say that when we're out as a parent, if, I'm, if I have a four-month-old and I need to get my pram onto the tram, more often than not, a man will offer to help me do that because we sort of like demarcate those roles to men as being like, oh, it's the lifting job, so the man can do it. But if I'm in a cafe and I need to change my baby or I need to go to the toilet and my baby's sitting in the high chair or whatever, what will we do normally is we'll say to a woman, can you just keep an eye on my baby or can you just hold my baby? Or maybe even not go to the toilet. Or or not go to the toilet. But if we are going to, if we say like, no, I'm going to get someone to help, we'll probably in most cases, unless we think about it, choose a woman. And I think that there are a few reasons for that. The first is that we have been trained to believe that the role of caretaking belongs to women and so therefore not only will she, will she not mind if we ask her to do that but also she'll be, she'll be sort of like instinctively good at it. Mm-hmm. The second is the very real concern and understandable concern that some people have about leaving their children with strange men. Um, I, I don't have that same concern but I understand why some people do and more often than not it's because we live in a world that abuses women and children. Um, But the third thing is because of that sense that we have that if we ask a man to help us with our child, that we are imposing on his time, particularly if he's a man wearing a suit. Um, We don't have that same sense of imposing on a woman's time because we assume that her time is... I don't think it's, it's a conscious thing of assuming that her time is not important. I think it's just assuming more so that her time is more available. It's exactly the same reason as why if you're walking down the street as a woman, pushing a pram in particular, you will always have the charity people ask you to stop. Have you got a moment to stop and talk about the environment? Um, And I I think that if you were to actually judge how often men who were wearing suits were stopped to be asked about the environment, it would be a lot less. Um, So in this article I wrote, it was about how I had started taking the conscious decision to, in those moments, not go to the woman and ask her to take care of my child, but to go to the man who was sitting next to me and say, would you mind just keeping an eye on my baby while I go to the bathroom? Or um, I have to travel a lot for work and sometimes I take my uh, kid with me, and when he was a baby especially. And so you'd go through the the security screening and you'd have to take them out of the carrier um, and when I got to the other side, I didn't want to put them on the floor and they can bring you like a little tub or a mattress or something to put them in, but I didn't really want to do that either. Um, So I would always just turn to the man behind me or I started turning to the man behind me and saying, can you just hold my baby for a minute while I put this carrier on? And I never ever had a man respond by going, that's not my job. In in a lot of cases, they were quite surprised that I had asked them, but not unpleasantly so, just more that like they they never asked to do those things. Um, and it's, a, it's not a, it's not gonna, that one act isn't going to change the world, but I think that the more we are conscious of including men in the general care of children that aren't their own, then the more the world that we live in itself will start to assume that childcare in general is the responsibility of adults, not just adult women. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that um, obviously I don't want to generalise about one culture, but... Uh, We went to Vietnam in August and we had an 11-month-old then. And we had spent, prior to having a baby, have spent quite a bit of time in Bali as well. And it is, to me, obvious the difference in how children are welcomed into public space. And it was obvious how children were welcomed into public space in the places we went to in Vietnam as opposed to how they're welcomed into public space here. And it's very cool in white Western society to be like, ugh, kids, we don't want kids, which always, of course, means that you don't want mums there as well because mums are uh, dumb and boring and as soon as you have a child, then you just become ridiculous. Um, And, of course, anything that women participate in en masse is bad. Um, And I thought that that was really interesting as well, that I never felt like... It wasn't like the spaces that we went into when we were in Vietnam were particularly, like, geared towards children. It wasn't like they were filled with children's toys or anything. It was just that the space itself felt far more accommodating to kids because there wasn't this sense that there was all these things that children weren't allowed to touch. Um, A lot of people wanted to interact with my baby and were quite happy with him, like, just crawling around on the floor. Um... And I, th- I think that that's something that we need to kind of, like, 
collectively get over as well. And women do it too, this sort of sense of like not only apologising for our children's presences but also participating in that feeling of general disgust that children are around. Which is not to say that I don't think that it's important to have adults-only spaces as well. Of course it is. But I think that the way that we conceive of how space is occupied is really interesting. Um, so just to summarise that in one kind of like quick soundbite, I guess, what I would say is that children, having a child more than anything um, really solidified to me the differences between how women and, and men are encouraged and entitled to occupy public space and the freedom with which they're allowed to move through that space and that there are things that we can do that change that but they involve having tough conversations and demanding things of men that they may ha have not been conditioned to have expected of them um, and that rather than in our own immediate lives in our immediate domestic settings rather than giving up at the first one or uh, for, you know first or second hurdles because those conversations are difficult for us to have and we're always the one who's sort of pushing for it because if you if if someone gave you a reason to do less work with a baby why wouldn't you do less work um and just going back to that parental leave thing if we actually made it a priority and an insistence that men took time out of their careers to do that substantial chunk of work with the baby not only would they realize how difficult it is they'd create better relationships between them and their children they i i would imagine in in more cases than not, create better relationships with their partners because they would actually be moving towards an equality that didn't exist pre previous to that. Um, but they may also realise that the concept of work and how we conceive of work is, is much bigger than this idea that you go out to work and that everything that happens in the domestic sphere is time off. Um, I think that when people talk about the breakdown of the family and, you know, in, in terms of my work as a feminist writer, I get to see a lot of great comments about how single mothers are ruining men's lives. Um, and someone sort of having this conversation the other day about um, why so many single mothers, if we, if we assume that, if we look at the circumstances in which women would be leaving men they're not going to leave partnerships that are fully supportive. Raising a child is so hard that they're not going to leave a partnership where they're actually getting substantial, not help, but substantial equality. They're going to leave partnerships where they are being forced to parent an adult as well as a child. They're going to leave partnerships that are no longer sustainable to them because the care of that child is becoming worse for them with, with the lack of support from their partner. And that needs to be recognised as well, you know, that if we actually want relationships between adults to be functional things, then the, the, the structure and the architecture of who is parenting those children needs to change. I think that's an important point, though, as well. It's not only the lack of support parenting, it's then gaining another adult baby, like, you know, and then having to manage someone else as well as the baby and then kind of thinking, like, who actually needs me in this moment? Well, can, I, can, I, sorry, can I just say that one of the things that I really like about... SPC is that um, there's firstly there's a lack of competitive mothering because there is that strong rule about no judgment but also there is a freedom to talk about the uselessness of our partners um, and there is a lack of like this sort of like handing out cookies because oh he's a really good guy and he changes the nappies occasionally I feel sick with anger and also frustration at how low the expectations women have been educated and conditioned to have about men's support when it comes to parenting. I feel sick about seeing women in other spaces talking about their partners like in such glowing terms because they occasionally do something. Or oh, he let me have the morning off. He, he took care of the kids for an hour, a couple of hours this morning. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky because sometimes he lets me have a sleep in. Firstly, like, we have to really assess the language around what we use as well. He lets me do these things. He helps me with these things. He helps out with the cleaning. He gave me. He gave me. Yeah, he babysat the kids this morning. Um, and again, like, going back to that idea that it's really tricky sometimes to have these conversations because they always end up in an argument. Um, it does often feel like you're having the same conversation over and over and over. But I think it's really important to persist with having those arguments. Um, and, and actually, they'll be the measure of whether or not your relationship will survive. 
Like you say, it's incredibly exhausting and you have, you know, people, you're talking about, we are talking about work before and, you know, having, having a baby is more than a full-time job. You know, it's three full-time jobs. And so that's how much... It's three full-time jobs, so eight hours a day, three times a day, because there's no time off. Three full-time jobs exist in the care of a baby. So if one person does two of those full-time jobs and the other person does one of those full-time jobs and then does a full-time job in the workforce... That's still unequal. It's still unfair. So if you if you do if you're a solo a single mother, you do three full time jobs by yourself, and or you pay incredibly huge amounts to outsource one of those full time jobs to a childcare um, centre or whatever. And it's it's just it. it, it it just beggars belief that we can, you know, I mean, obviously we live in a world where women's work in the workforce is undervalued and underpaid as well. So then women's work in the domestic space and women's work as carers is, you know, the, the, the regard for it is just laughably low. So I think that, like you're saying, men don't want to do that work because it's shit work and it's unpaid and someone else does it. And so you have to kind of it has to be a revolution like it has to be actually but it also a gets, dismantling of the existing structures it can't just be tinkering at the edges it's shit work in lots of ways and it's definitely shit work when you're first learning to do it but i mean obviously there is a reward to it too and and i think that you have to be in it for a while like consistently in it and and primarily in it for a while before you actually get that reward. So, I mean, even, in, even if, a, even if a, we have to look at, like, the structure of workplaces as well, even if a father can't take off six months to look after his child, maybe he could and should, and workplaces should be open to this, go to that workplace and say, I want to work three days a week so that I can care for my child two days a week. And then they'll also, like, co-parent on the weekends. But so that... Two days a week, he wakes up with that baby. He does everything for that baby or toddler during the day. He makes sure that that toddler or baby is fed and he plays with them and, put, like, does dinner and bath and bedtime that night and realises how annoying that is but also how much fun it can be but also how, like, it is work. Yeah, it's like any job. So if you were... If you've been working your whole life um, to become a human rights lawyer... And then you finally landed this dream job at this, you know, you know, really plush, progressive firm that paid you squillions of dollars to go and, like, fight for human rights. There would still be, like, 75% of your job would be garbage. Then, then there's writing 20... Emails. Yeah, writing emails, answering phones, sitting in boring meetings, whatever. And then maybe 25% of it would be, like, I'm, a, I'm in the court, you're this, blah, blah, you know. So that's my understanding of what happens in courts. <laughs> um, but so any job that's rewarding and satisfying and amazing and your dream is also still a lot of drudge work. Mm. But the thing is that in other cases, that's remunerated, mm. that's paid, that's recognised. And in the case of motherhood, it's not only not paid, it's disregarded, it's seen as, it's seen as trivial, it's derided. Mm. It's, 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 we're treated as though, you know, we, when we give birth, we, had a, we have a lobotomy at the same time and um, that everything that we accomplish after that is somehow trivial, you know. So I was going to just add what Clem was saying about the even when you're co-parenting with someone, and we've talked about this at length many times, even when you're co-parenting with, with a male partner, and I, I, I have not co-parented a baby with a, with a female partner, but I imagine it's different, and if anyone here can shed some light on that. Co-parenting with a male partner... When both of you are there and both of you are on duty, you're still in charge. So, you, you, for, for women, for mothers, you get to sometimes clock off. But men sometimes clock on. 
if you're a mother, you're always on. You're on 20 to 24 hours a day, you know, and then you clock off. You organise with your partner. I'm going out. I'm going to go and see Wonder Woman at 3.30. I'm going to eat a popcorn the size of my head and I'll probably fall asleep during it and then I'm coming home at 5.30 for bath time, dinner, catastrophe hour. That's how women clock off. We organise to do that. Men clock on. They come home from work and like, okay, right, I'm ready to work, you know, or, or not. Sometimes. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, I was talking to someone just on the weekend who was saying that, that their partner is now a full-time stay-at-home dad and realising how much of a demand it is. But when they get home from work, when she gets home from work... She, you know, she's immediately like, okay, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here to she support and take over. I clock on and then, you know, recognising how much, how annoying and difficult the day might have been. But also because you have that built-in conditioning of, of when you're there, you can't just sort of like take the back seat because somehow that's being unfair to the man. And yet when she was the full-time stay-at-home parent, he would come home from his like terribly hard eight hours day at work. And, which by the way is a holiday, and would come home and then need to lie down for 30 minutes just to, you know, chill after his hard day at the office. Um, And it's like, before you have have kids, that's that's really fine, you know, like, that's a smart thing to do, like, take some time out for yourself, for self-care, you know, lie on the couch, I'm just going to watch Brooklyn 99. Um, But... After you have kids, women don't get to do that. And men still do. Men carve out ways. They'll take longer to come home. They'll go to get groceries. Yeah, go to the toilet and read National Geographic for 45 minutes. Um, go to get groceries and just, like, I don't know what they do, wander up and down the aisles for twice as long as they need to. Sometimes I do that when I go to the yeah, shop, Yeah, no, actually. me too. But it's, a, but it's okay if I do it. Um, because that's the thing is the mentality with, I think, male parents, where even though it's, the, it's their child, children, and I parent um, three kids. My um, stepkids are, are older. My partner's um, partner and I share care with their mum. So we have um, two boys as well who are seven and nine years old, week on, week off. And so I parent three kids um, in a way that is unique to my... It's unique to me and my choices, but it's also about my gender. It's also about some of the things that are, are, are predetermined. Um, I, the, the older boys will still come to me if they have to t- tell a secret that's a bit embarrassing. They still come to me for cuddles and snuggles. You know what I mean? Like, these things... That, and, and their dad, you know, hates that. He's like, why won't they come and hang with me? It's like, well... If you are not emotionally available to them all the time, then they're not going to think of you when they want to be emotionally vulnerable. So there are all these kind of fault lines in within parenting that fall along gender lines. And I think that there is a problem as well. Um, you know, it is important to acknowledge that there are in some situations men who want to do more but who are stopped at the outset from a female partner from doing more. And again, like, I would never normally offer a disclaimer in favour of men. Um, but, you know, there's no... That's sort of, like, conditioning as well to be... To assume that, that only the mum can do the job properly or to criticise the way that the other parent does it. You know, every parent is going to do their things differently. And you just kind of have to step back and go, okay, well, it's not the way I would do it, but it's the way that they're doing it. You have to examine your conditioning too because I do that all the time. I'm like, oh, just let me do it. You're you're being... I never do that. I do it all the time because I'm like, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it in some second-rate way that I'm going to have to fix later. I'll just do it rather than tell you to do it and then manage you while you do it and then check that you did do it, you know. So I need to examine myself as well and look at my gender conditioning and... Well, I think it's uh, yeah. this mass trick that's been played on women that if we... I mean, obviously, this is how patriarchy works. If we, if we try and, like, 
pretend superficially that domestic labour is really important and that only women know how to do it properly, then we'll keep them distracted and happy in the kitchen doing it. And, you know, we'll keep them distracted and happy devoting all of their time to their children because there are so few... And it works with a lot of women. It works with a lot of women who, are, who have maybe not been in communities or environments that have... Um, broken through that conditioning and asked them to question these things because there are so few things that women are allowed to feel proud of. We're not allowed to talk about being good at maths. We're not allowed to talk about being great artists or being great at sports or anything like that. Um, We may be really good at those things, but we're supposed to always downplay our achievements or say, well, you know... um, I'm, I'm not really very good at it, or, um, oh, you know, it's, I look terrible today, stop it. Um, but the one thing that we are allowed to take pride in, and compete in even, is the way that we mother, and how good we are at being But mothers. even that's ridiculed, you know what I mean? Like it is, I, but, but it's, yeah. it, I'm saying that, that when the circumstances that we live in are so limited, yeah. that, that if you haven't, take if you haven't, time. like, yeah, if you haven't yeah. um, broken through that conditioning... And the one thing that you're allowed to feel good about is being a domestic goddess or whatever it is. Then, of course, you're going to be like, I'm going to be the best damn domestic goddess there is. And I'm going to be the best parent. And I'm going to give birth the best. Do you know, I, there was, I saw Jeanette Winterson a couple of years ago. She came out for the Wheeler Centre. And somebody said to her, if you hadn't written Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, if you hadn't come out, and if you hadn't been, you know, I don't know if people know the, 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 the basic backstory that... She came out as a lesbian and her fundamentalist Christian family um, excommunicated her. And somebody asked her, what, what would have become of you if that hadn't happened? And she said, I think, and I was so moved by her honesty, she said, I think I would have gone down the, 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 the normal path and gotten married and, and lived a suburban life with children, but I would have been so powered by my rage and anger that I would have, you know, been the worst, the meanest, the most judgmental. I would have policed that, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, she's like, I would have fucking aced that. I would have been the meanest, hardest, you know, most heterosexual you know, house-owning, um, uh, you know, middle-class wife and mother because I would have been so repressed that I think it would have gone into a pursuit of excellence at this limited thing that I was going to do. And I think that, that, that you're right, that does, it does happen and it is, a kind of, um, it is a kind of fine line between, you know, wanting to celebrate the things that women do do and celebrate the domestic sphere as a valid and valuable place to be whilst also putting it in perspective and not, and not fetishising it at the expense of yeah. other women. It's like, it's like when you see women saying things that, you know, in some of the other parenting groups that I'm on that are maybe a bit less kind of like uh, of the same politics as SBZ. It's when, you, you, you know, you see women saying things like, oh... <coughs> What should I do? I've asked my husband if we can have a cleaner, but he says that it's a waste of money. Of course it's a waste of money for him. He's not doing the cleaning. He doesn't have to do the cleaning. Why, why would, you why ask would him? he want to spend it when he's got a, a live-in housemaid to do it for him? You know, so it's sort of like this kind of... I mean, that's kind of steering into the idea that any work that's done by women <coughs> should be done just by virtue of them, like, being able to do it. You know, like, so... And again, women make those critical judgments themselves too, that if you're a woman who pays for a cleaner to come into your house, then you're somehow indulgent and lazy or you're not doing the job that you should be doing. But no one ever complains about a man hiring a plumber or, you know, hiring someone to come and mow the lawns because it's acceptable for men to outsource their work because they're busy and they need their weekends to relax. Well, people don't say about a man who gets, you know, yeah, a refrigerator mechanic in, like, you're oppressing that refrigerator mechanic... And you're just outsourcing your oppression. The well, fact also, that you don't know how to fix that refrigerator. You're passing that on to someone from a working class background. Who, you know what I mean? Like but being, this, a, being a qualified refrigerator mechanic as well is assumed to be a real job that's, yeah. that's, that is, has training and yeah. that the person who's performing it has skills and, and qualifications. Being a cleaner, that's just women's work. Yeah. Anyone so can clean a house. Just, just so, so I say that to, to point out that even in progressive circles... People will find really sophisticated ways of acting out their misogyny, um, 
even if they're super right on with their class politics and their race politics and everything else, they will still throw women under the bus um, if they can paint those women as just middle-class white women who, you know, um, have too much time on their hands, you know. Um, and that's a, a problem in, in... I mean, in feminist circles, you have the problem of having to argue for leftist politics and then in leftist circles you have the problem of having to argue for feminist politics and I find, you know, in, all, in both of them, you, it, it, the, the, the question of, you know, white supremacy is often, you know, overlooked as well and, you know... Well, so and there, we're three white women yeah. sitting on stage, you know, and we're, both, we're all, I'm assuming, coming from middle-class backgrounds so there's, there's a dearth of experience on here as well, you know, that... that Obviously, we can't speak to the the realities of motherhood for all people. And it's, yeah, but it's. I think it is interesting that I, I think in feminist spaces there's there's this constant I think attempt and effort to engage with all different kinds of politics, whereas in in other spaces not led by women and not and that that attempt doesn't always succeed, but. In, in other spaces, there's not that effort made and there's not a critique of those spaces for not doing it. So I think that it's the same thing, you know, with, with when we're talking about mothers or, or women. It's, there's an incredible uh, harshness with, the, with which the way that we... with which we criticise women doing anything. If women don't have children, they're the worst. They're horrible, barren spinsters. And if women do have children, well, you chose to have a child and if you just want to pop a few out, that's up to you, love, you know. And it's, if you, you know, you can literally cannot win. It's the, the common denominator in all these things is misogyny and sexism. But I think that whether or not you have children or not, and, you know, to be fair, this has definitely become, like, more obvious to me since having a child. Um, because prior to having a child, I would have participated in that kind of like consciously cool ugh, children are disgusting keep them away from me sort of narrative because it's so popular in our culture and it's it's so easy to kind of like it's so easy to indulge in that but I think actually whether or not you have children or not like the one thing that we need more of in society is empathy and nothing creates empathy more than caring for people who literally can't care for themselves um and for everyone to take that collective responsibility for looking after children and for us to have a more kind of like open where we can a more open trusting um, frame of mind around that um, I think is, is, you know, creates huge benefits for the communities that we live in. And there's a great program that I know a little bit about but um, it's called The Roots of Empathy and I, th- and I think it was a pilot program that ran in Canada where they had um, a parent who was primarily a mother because she was more often than not going to be the one staying at home with a child. Pairing a mother of a toddler with a child at a primary school over the course of a year and once a week that mother would come in with her toddler for an hour and the child that she was paired with would would help the mother take care of that child. Um, And the idea behind it, it, and it was proven to have worked, was that it was supposed to have created empathy between young people and this idea of selflessness and and caring for someone that needed more care than they did. And I feel like that's part of how we need to kind of like address this architecture as well, is this sort of like very individualist sense that we have in, you know, white colonialist society that everything is ours just for the taking and, and we can't give anything back to anyone else, that we need to demand more of people, you know, and kind of, like, break through that sort of, like, aversion that we have to earnestness and become more of an earnest, empathetic society that that cares for... cares for the the care of children, not just because it's important for us to do collectively as a community, but that recognises that that care is then learned by them, that care for other people is absorbed by them, them and is taken up into the next generation. Care begets care. I think I'm going to have to call it there and that's a really nice um, way to end. And um, I just realised we're way over time and it's really hot and I probably have to breastfeed now. Um, What? I just got icy poles. We've got icy poles. But I just... I I did um, ask Murphy to stick around so that people can... Like, we can just have a chat. But maybe we can... 
turn the recording off and turn the fans on and eat icy poles. And, like, anyone that wants to stick around can have a chat. Um, but I think we should, we should call it there. So thank you so much for coming. And, um, yeah, if you want to stick around and have an informal chat, that would be really nice. It's my pleasure to have a platform to invite such wonderful people. So thank you for coming. And we do have our final session on the 16th of January, which happens to be my daughter's birthday, first birthday. So there'll be a kind of impromptu party as well. Um, so I hope you can make it. I know it's kind of right in holiday time, but 16th of January, we'll be back here. Thanks a lot. <laughs>